0: Welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts for today, Lauren Mike.
1: And I'm Aaron Schneider. Today we have Jill Jamison, CEO of Illuminati Infrastructure Advisors, joining us here today to talk about public-private partnerships, or P3s. Jill, you've been working with the Corps for a number of years as our contractor and helping to stand up the P3 pilot program, so thank you so much for joining us here today.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So, before we dive into details of P3 and the the pilot program, you know, could you talk a little bit about your background, um, how you've gotten to, to where you are in the P3 world?
2: Sure. I've been doing P3 and alternative finance and delivery for massive infrastructure projects for about 30 years. I'm one of the few people, I think, in the industry that actually has done this their entire career. Uh, My background is in law and finance, which makes me universally despised by everyone around me, but it's very good for infrastructure, right? (laughs) Um, So I I began my career as an investment banker. I I ended up going overseas, and it was while I was overseas that I became exposed to to public-private partnerships and alternative delivery. As you probably know, in the world of public-private partnerships, it's pretty plain vanilla, quite common across the globe. It's really, more new to the United States for a whole host of reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about here today. But so I cut my teeth on public-private partnerships abroad, um, literally across just about every infrastructure sector. So whether it's transportation, water, social infrastructure, um, a wide array of things. And in about 2012, I was coming back from overseas where I was helping um, rebuild Kosovo after the war. And I walked into one of our airports and realized it was worse than the one we had just built in, 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 in Kosovo, and I said, well, it's time for me to redirect my efforts towards the United States. Since then, I've been uh, working for federal, state, and local government authorities across the nation, um, obviously with the Corps of Engineers, which is one of my all-time favorite clients, um, as well as state and local government, so um, everything from public schools, to massive transit projects, to water infrastructure, whether it's purification or irrigation, et cetera. Um, And really what I do is just help public sector entities figure out a timelier, more cost-effective method of delivering infrastructure. So many of our projects in the United States just get um, delayed eternally. Um, it's bad value for the taxpayer, and it's frustrating for the people who want to get the benefits of the infrastructure. So so that's my background. Um, I've been with Illuminati since May, and, again, we only work on that government side of the equation. We don't work on the private developer side. I sit with my public sector clients on the same side of the table negotiating with with potential investors and developers.
0: Great. Thank you, Jill. And thank you for giving us your overall background and, and talking about how that relates to our infrastructure challenges. We want to delve into P3 specifically and or public-private partnerships. Can you talk about what is P3? Our um, P3 private privatization, and do they provide free money?
2: Well, if they provided free money, my friends, I wouldn't be working anymore. (laughs) Um, So, so no, they don't provide free money. But, yeah, so so public-private partnership is a really tough thing to define because it means different things to different people. Um, There is no universally accepted um, definition of public-private partnership. But when we're talking about infrastructure, and particularly infrastructure finance and alternative delivery in the context of the Corps of Engineers, um, it typically refers to sort of a family of contract types that are usually long-term forms of cooperation between the public sector and a private entity that ensure the financing, design, construction, operation, and or maintenance uh, of a public infrastructure facility. So typically it's a publicly owned asset that's just being delivered in a different way that might involve private finance, it might involve design build and life cycle considerations such as O&M it bundles different lifecycle elements together, right? So instead of a design bid-build, which would sort of be the traditional delivery with public funding coming and the drips and drabs of appropriation, P3 is a little bit different. You actually, through one single procurement process, will hire an entity, which is usually a group of companies that incorporate um, a special purpose vehicle that will be in charge not only of, of privately financing, so putting their own money or securing debt for the project, to ensure that the design and construction is done, but also maintaining that asset over its life cycle. So it could be 30 years, 50 years, depending on how the contract is structured. They're typically repaid through one of two basic methodologies. It can be. Most people are very familiar with toll roads, right? And so it can be through what we call user payments. So private entity comes in, they design, build, finance, operate, and maintain a, a publicly owned toll road. They don't if something goes south they can't pack up their toll road and go home it's owned by the state or the local jurisdiction um, but they're repaid only through the tolls and the usage so, so that's one way of doing it the other way of, of repaying them is through budget-based payments so just think of it as long-term payments kind of like a mortgage so you pay monthly installments over the 30-year term that will compensate the um, the private entity's cost of capital so what they invested in the asset plus the operating and maintenance However, in these sort of cases, they're only really paid for performance. So, so if the asset is underperforming or it's not meeting the maintenance standards that are set out in the agreement, then there can be deductions. So they're putting their own money at risk because they need to get repaid for the assets that they've built that they don't own. And the state or the federal government, they actually have some power there because if they – fail to comply, if the private partner fails to comply, you can withhold payments and and financially um, penalize them for poor performance. To your question, Lauren, about is it free money? No. I think that's one of the misnomers. People say, well, you know, we can't afford this project. We don't have it in our budget. Let's do a public-private partnership with the hope that they will miraculously pay for the work. It can, in some instances, like in real estate, if you need a new courthouse, and you have a lot of land. Maybe you can monetize the rest of that land, and you can do mixed-use commercial or condos or whatnot. But for the brunt of, of public works, um, you know what I call public purpose infrastructure—so roads and water systems, etc.—there really isn't enough ancillary revenue that would pay for that. So you do need to find a source of money, whether it's through user payments or through the budget. The benefit is that you can spread out those payments over time. So. The core you guys know this better than I do when you take a project, um, or you're going to initiate a project, you need to start getting your budget allocation set up. Right? And so you need to wait for that first infusion of money before you can begin. Imagine if you had all the money up front, um, how efficient you might be able to be going forward. So, so it is a little bit different in that terms, but it's not free money. And to your question as well about privatization, uh, that's like my pet peeve, that that, uh, question. So thank you for asking. No, public-private partnership is not privatization. I often, this is a podcast, so you can't see what I'm I'm sort of mentally envisioning, but I often think of the sort of a spectrum of options. And if if you bear with me for a second, on the left-hand side of the spectrum, let's call this our traditional delivery. And that's design, bid, build, you know, maybe even design, build in some instances, but it's publicly funded. So in the core world, it's usually on a pay-go basis, right? So you're waiting for funding, you're going forward, design, bid, build, multiple contracts, you know, you do, you break it into pieces according to your appropriations, et cetera. On the far side of the spectrum, the other side would be privatization. And that's where you actually dispose of an asset. It's a disposition process. You sell the ownership right. And that's very different. We did this in the telecom in in, the 1980s with AT&T that was actually sold to private investors. Great example of privatization. But privatization doesn't always mean that you completely walk away. We still have regulatory authority over our our telecom system today, right? So, So the government can retain a role, they just don't own the assets. So between those two extremes is the world of public-private partnerships, and a public-private partnerships again, it's a it's a family of contracts, right? And it can vary. So in some instances, you might be looking at things like energy savings performance contracts, which a lot of people know ESPCs, where somebody comes in and at their own on their own dollar they'll change out all the light bulbs in your office and you pay them a percentage of your energy savings, right? So if your energy bills go down, then 10% of that or 15% of that will go to the person who paid for the light bulb. That could be one kind, but then others include longer term contracts like design, build, finance, operate, maintain. But in these, again, it's the public sector and the private sector partnering together to deliver a public owned asset. And if you want to put this in a uh, sort of as an analogy, on the right-hand side, when we're looking at privatization, that's like divorce, right? So I'm getting rid of something. And as I use the example of AT&T, divorce is, always, is not always a complete breakage, right? You can have alimony payments, like we still have regulatory authority over those sorts of things, but it's very akin to privatization, uh, to divorce public private partnerships are much more like a marriage where there are actually two partners, each has a role in this. Um, and as many of us know, you know, divorce can be easier than marriage sometimes in terms of working through issues, but privatization is very different than public private partnerships. And if we wanna take this analogy to its nauseous extreme, which I'm tending to do, yeah, on the left-hand side, where we have traditional delivery, I like to think of that as, as sort of like when you're a bachelor and you're dating around and you have lots of <laughs> lots of different contracts or lots of different dates, but you always tend to be bankrupt, right? So you don't ever have a lot of money because you're spending it on all these projects. That would be sort of a spectrum of options with the, differenti- the difference between privatization and public-private partnerships. Long answer to a very short question, so I apologize for that, Laura. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Jill. So, I I guess, you know, working for the core and, you know, being somebody that communicates to the public a lot, I always had to interpret what engineers would say and and try to consolidate it. So, I I really think when you talk about privatization here, the reality today is we deliver our projects in partnership with private entities. Private entities deliver them today. And all we're looking at is just changing the mechanism for that delivery. So, private companies still will implement these types of projects. It's just going to be done in a different method. You know, and I think the key really is like looking from a a public perspective, the the concept is that you get your project fast in the ground so you get the benefits up front and you pay for it over time, kind of like the mortgage on your house, versus the traditional delivery mechanism that will build a project over a somewhat long period of time which you're paying for on the front side and then you you get it done and you get some of those benefits. So I feel like there's a little bit twist on the the benefit side when the public sees those benefits and and then the long-term payment. Um, over time. And it seems like the payment over time is a big benefit for many communities just because then they can make some of these multi-generational type projects. One thing, you know, in looking at this, we've worked with you a lot on the federal government side and with a core, but do you see are P3s more prevalent at the the state and local levels? And if they are, why do you think they're more prevalent there than within the federal government?
2: So, yeah, so absolutely more prevalent at the state and local government. Um, To be quite frank, the federal government, just by policy, um, and this is pre-existing policy, this isn't a red or blue issue, has always had a bit of a um, prejudice against sort of private sector financing of public work. And part of that, it it makes sense, right? So, So, the Treasury Department or the U.S. federal government can borrow at the lowest possible rates. And so the need for for P3 tends to have different sort of effects. State and local governments have different budgeting systems. They have different rules, they have different regulations, et cetera. And so it's really pretty disparate across the United States, but we have some jurisdictions like California right now They use this P3 almost to the same extent that the Canadians do in terms of, it's just a normal part of their delivery options, right? So they have a tool chest of ways that they can deliver new schools or new courthouses or new energy systems. And P3 is just one of them. Um, They have enabling legislation, they have all of those sorts of things. So, So they do that pretty easily. Other states like Virginia, Florida, even Maryland these days is doing a lot of P3. We do have other states that that don't wanna touch it, right? For whatever reason, but New York state, for instance, some people in the Corps will know this, um, they don't even have design build legislation. So they don't even allow for design build, but yet, however, the New York, New Jersey Port Authority can do whatever they want. And so they just did a $4.3 billion um, expansion of LaGuardia Airport. They're doing another expansion of of JFK Airport through a public-private partnership design-build, finance, operate, maintain. So so yeah, it's much more prevalent at the local level. Um, It can be by sector. So we see a lot of it in transportation. We also see some of it in water and other things. Um, So it really runs the gamut. But I think from the federal government perspective, there is an inherent bias against it, even if it can save taxpayers time and money, and that inherent bias comes into the budget system, right? It's a very wonky discussion about OMB and CBO and, and how they score public private, private partnerships, but because of the way they score these things, it has effectively rendered them unusable. For capital projects, with some exceptions. So we do have exceptions at the federal level, but that would be the reason. Um, they're just simply not widely allowable under federal um, contracting and budget processes. Thanks,
0: Jill. And we'll we'll talk further about some of those challenges here in a in a bit at the federal level. But I, I want to focus first on, on what are some of the benefits to the federal government associated with uh, P3? You know, why should the Corps consider using this mechanism for delivery? And how can using P3 provide value compared to traditional delivery?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that, uh, let me just caveat everything I've said thus far, that the P3 is, is sort of like a surgical tool. It is incredibly useful when it is solving a problem but you wouldn't go in for brain surgery just for the fun of it, right? So, so you don't use P3 for everything. Um, it really is a surgical tool that you want to be careful about. So, so it is. it should never be seen as a solution in search of a problem. When it is the best tool for resolving a problem, it is the right tool. So some of the benefits of this, particularly if we're looking at it through the lens of the federal government and the core specifically, and I, I alluded to this earlier, you've got a – historic problem with cost overruns and schedule delays in terms of the implementation of public works uh, projects and i'm not putting that on the core it's simply the way the system is, is built right you are forced to artificially and inefficiently break projects into tiny pieces because you have to align your projects to the drips and drabs of appropriations that are coming out of congress so you can take a project that logically could be done in three years and it will take you 30 or 40 years because you need to break it into pieces so you're mobilizing and demobilizing you're holding insurance you're going through hundreds of procurements as opposed to just one so because of that system of the paygo basis you've been forced to deliver very inefficiently so your projects are getting delayed so what would p3 do we've talked about this even without p3 if all projects were fully funded up front You could be a heck of a lot more efficient, Um, and P3 allows for that. It, It brings the money up front. Secondly, it aligns the payments with public benefits. To Aaron's point previously, being able to extend out those payments over time doesn't only limit the impact on an annual basis to the budget, but those benefiting from the project are actually the ones that are paying. Right now, I am going to be paying for work that my grandchildren will benefit from because then maybe they'll be done by that time, right? And we've always had this, that we pay up front because we want to be good and we want to ensure that we're a AAA-rated credit. But the reality is, is that we've misaligned our payments with the benefits and the beneficiaries. So, So this is another way of doing that. Third benefit, and to me as a taxpayer, um, I think this is hugely important, is that P3 allow you to meaningfully transfer risk to the private sector. And by that, I mean, right now, the taxpayer, um, through the core and through the federal government, owns almost all of the risk uh, associated with implementing projects, cost overruns, schedule delays, et cetera, et cetera. Under P3, the way this works is that you don't pay until the project is completed. And that changes the behavior of the contractors and everyone else. They are actually incentivized to deliver on time and on budget because they own that risk. And quite frankly, they do a really good job at it. Once they have their own capital at risk, their behavior changes completely also, it does tend to take a lot of the uncertainty out of this project. They get their own money, they get it up front, they can deliver the project based on outcomes and output based performance indicators. And in over 70% of the time they come in before the deadline and under budget, as opposed to our traditional delivery in which 90% of our mega projects are over budget, beyond schedule and don't deliver the public benefits that they've promised. So those are some examples. Another would be of of benefits. Another is innovation. Look, you know, I'm doing a lot of projects right now in the water sector um, in areas where some of the public authorities just don't have experience. Desalination, water recycling uh, through indirect potable reuse or direct potable reuse. There's not a lot of history um, in some of our public institutions of having done those projects. So if I want something like that or even, say, a Hyperloop, and I've never done a Hyperloop, am I not well advised to say, I'm gonna hire a company that that's all they do is Hyperloop (laughs) um, and you guys, you bear all the risk, I'll start paying once it's completed and operating, right? So so those are just some of the examples of that, um, of of how it would benefit um, the federal government. Again, it depends on what problem you're solving, what the model would be and what the actual specifications would be, but those are examples.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jill. You know, you have me convinced that uh, obviously this is a great tool for us to have in our toolbox to to implement some of these projects. And you know, it kind of makes me wonder, like, you know, why aren't we implementing P3 more, in, in particular, at the federal level? I believe that other governments um, across the world they they utilize this approach as a as kind of a standard tool in their toolbox, but but not here. So I kind of wondering, you know, why that is? Why do we see this more in other countries than we see it here in the United States? And then are there other impediments i think you and i could talk all day about scoring but we actually want people to listen to this podcast and so if we talk too much about scoring we might lose a few of our listeners but really like why why is do other countries use this and have this in the toolbox compared to here in the united states
2: absolutely they do i mean it's um i think i referenced canada before but for them it's a provincial level and it's a federal level any project over a certain threshold must be evaluated to see if it is better delivered through p three or through traditional delivery it's It's not considered out there or crazy. This is just one of the tools in the toolbox. So I think, yeah, I think that there's nothing to lose by expanding the toolbox. The challenge is, and without being too wonky in terms of scoring, is that the the OMB and CBO and those who control the budget, um, they have legitimate fears. And I actually, I am one of the few human beings that commiserates with their fears, right? And their fear is that if every agency could go out in the federal government and just sign deals that means that they're obligated to make payments for 30 or 40 years for billion dollar projects, then effectively Treasury has lost the authority as the sole borrower of the federal government. Um, it could go off the rails pretty quickly if everybody is, is buying houses by, by only mortgage payments, right? So back in the 90s or the 80s, actually, um, there was some abuse of that, um, it the abuses that were particularly aligned with um, public buildings. And so OMB and CBO, really, they crack down and they say, no, you can't do this. If you're gonna try to do a public-private partnership, what we would need to do, we being the budget authorities, is give you full budget authority for the total amount of your payments over 30 years in one budget year. And and as we know, that kind of defeats the purpose. Nobody ever gets full appropriations in one year for a capital project. And so consequently, it made it impossible to do P3. other countries have different budget systems. They have accrual based systems. They have capital budgets. We don't have a capital budget in the United States. So there are a lot of reasons why we can't do it. I said before that there's sort of an inherent bias against um, public private partnerships and private finance. That bias is basically because it could take the United States off the rails as being fiscally responsible. That said, I would argue that there are tools that we could actually, budget tools that could be imposed or requirements on the contract that would protect the federal government from that. And just one more comment on this before everyone turns this off, because this is now very wonky. One of the fears, and I think it's it's a legitimate fear that OMB and CBO have in this, is even though we have a private entity that's gonna design, build, finance, operate, maintain the, the asset, I own it as the federal government. And if something goes wrong with this contract, I can't just take the asset without paying some compensation, even if they're at fault, right? And so these are what we call contingent liabilities. And you have to be able to manage those contingent liabilities. And that's what worries OMB. That said, as I mentioned, we've seen this problem in other jurisdictions and have been able to solve for it, right? By requiring sort of make whole provisions and other sorts of things. So. It's unfortunate. I think it would save taxpayers a lot of time and money uh, until we can address the budget issues associated with OMB and CBO. It's it's really much more limited to two things, projects that involve operational costs, right, anything energy-related. or Even if it's like a utility, a water-type thing, that can be operational. That's allowable for P3s, as I mentioned, uh, ESPCs energy savings performance contracts, that's been done. So so it is allowed in some instances and that's just not writ large. Okay, Erin, now it's up to you to make it interesting again. Sorry.
0: <laughs> well I'll I'll take over and I'll I'll try to do my okay, best. Well, <laughs> Well, and so, so, Jill, you just talked about some of the constraints, um, and previously we talked about some of the the benefits to P3. So, you know, what specifically are some of the drivers that that cause these public authorities to consider P3, and and that also wanted to, uh, when we think about the portfolio of projects out there, infrastructure projects out there, I know that all those projects are not necessarily suited for this alternative delivery mechanism. So, what also makes a project a good candidate for P3.
2: Yeah, so you're right. So, so, as I said before, I think in Canada, like less than 8% of their total projects are actually done through P3 and they have to evaluate them all. So it does show you that P3 is not always the best tool for this. So, So let me talk a little bit. I talked about the benefits of P3. Let me talk about some of the disadvantages and then we can talk about which projects are best aligned for them. My point before about, you know, faster delivery, innovation, all of those sorts of things, risk transfer, there's being benefits. There is a, particularly one very specific reason why you, you know, why people walk away from P3, particularly at the at state and local level. And that is the cost of financing is usually higher for a, a private entity than it would ever be for, for, a, for a public entity. So by that, I mean that um, right now, US Treasuries are 1%, let's say that. The, the margin the differential between the cost of borrowing of the federal government and the private entity could be you know hundreds and hundreds of basis points or percentages right a percentage points. so I think traditionally it's been about three percent differential um, higher so that cost differential is often enough to make people say wait why would I pay more for financing using a private sector than if I could do this myself now in the case of the core you guys don't borrow yourself so that's not really the driving issue that's what OMB and CBO are looking at why would you not do a P3 or why would you even do a P3? We do what you generally call a value for money analysis to see if there are value drivers that would overcome that financing cost differential, right? So, so if I know the private sector cost capital is higher. I'm obviously not just going to go to the private sector and do it because it would be more expensive unless – there are other savings that are gonna offset that. And and one of those things that we often see, as I mentioned before, is simply faster delivery, more efficient delivery. Um, In the case of the core, um, I've worked on some projects with you guys that literally were authorized in the 1980s and are still not finished. If you can reduce that time period for that project to three or four years, just think of the savings, not only in inflation, but as I said, in sort of those annual cost of, you know, a project that's 100 million can go up to a billion dollars over 50 years. So, so cost avoidance because of the acceleration in terms of of delivering the infrastructure. The second one, as I mentioned before, is also that cost of risk transfer. Um, So, we can actually quantify, we can look historically and do regression analyses of how often a core project um, of a certain kind goes over budget, goes beyond schedule, et cetera. And we can quantify what the cost of transferring that to a third party will be in terms of benefits. And if they're willing to take that on and they're well positioned to take that on, that cost saving in and of itself, although it's indirect, um, brings value that can help start overcoming that financing cost differential. But I would say probably the key driver of savings in the P3 world comes by bundling different life cycle elements. How often, and we've all seen this, you know the capital team doesn't speak to the operating team, and we have integration issues at some point. After after you you know inaugurate this new thing, have a great ribbon cut cutting ceremony, you find out that certain things aren't operationally as efficient as you would want them to be. But by integrating these things, we generally find there can be up to a twenty percent savings versus traditional design bid build. And then if you add to that the fact that you will require This private entity to maintain things at a certain standard contractually, they have to, They can't defer maintenance. Um, Every dollar of deferred maintenance converts to five or $6 of future capital needs. If we don't defer maintenance, because we actually have contractually stipulated the responsibility for that maintenance and they're required to maintain it at a certain level, all of a sudden the life cycle costs of that project um, start to come down. So what we do is we take a life cycle analysis of the cost. Obviously financing costs will be higher using the private sector, but if others can bring savings, through whether it's not deferring maintenance, whether it's the integration of of operations with the design build process, or whether it's through, you know, just simply accelerated delivery, that's how you can determine whether or not you would do a project that way. So we do a qualitative and quantitative analysis of that. Projects that don't make good candidates are really those that we can't define clearly, or there's too much uncertainty and we can't really allocate risk appropriately, right? That could be that we don't really know what we need yet. We'll figure it out when we get there, particularly flood risk management and some of those things you may run into those sorts of issues where you can't clearly define output or maybe it is of, of such um, life safety value that, that people are just not comfortable with the model. Um, but generally, if we can clearly allocate responsibilities, if we don't have a lot of crossover liabilities as well, so, imagine, if you will, um, you want a P3 uh, surgical center, but you decide to do it inside a hospital is 1 small part of a hospital. Well, what if there's a fire. On the 2nd floor that affects that, but you're responsible, like, where are the liabilities end for 1 person and not the other. So, so when it's really complex in those ways, generally, we don't look at P3 if we can't define service level outputs. If if we really don't know exactly what we need, then those are the ones that make very poor candidates. Also, if you just have a lot of legal and environmental issues outstanding, nobody likes to take on those risks. So those tend to be um push people to more traditional delivery.
1: Yeah, thanks, Sean. I, I think, you know, we've seen with the, the core and the P three pilot program that the even though we're a federal agency Uh, Many of the projects that we're implementing are in cooperation with non-federal entities and the non-federal entities actually are the ones that own, operate, maintain those moving forward. So it gave us the opportunity to work really hand-in-hand with our our non-federal partners to actually come up with some P3 pilot projects. So we have three of those in Fargo, Brazos and LA River. Uh, That are moving forward. And we're kind of, you know, it's not full project delivery. Um, We're breaking these into pieces to allow the locals to deliver using the P3. Um, The CORE's piece is still traditional, but it's definitely added significant value. You know, I guess, you know, what tips would you have for CORE staff and and even some of those partners out there, um, those communities that are looking at pursuing a P3 project?
2: Yeah. I mean, certainly in the core world, we've had to be very creative in terms of, as we often say, Erin, you and Lauren know this, by P3, we mean just getting things done in a timely or more cost-effective manner, right? And so whether it's traditional P3 or not, um, we're just looking for ways to get projects that have been stuck sometimes for generations, sometimes not that long, um, finalized so that the public use is, is there and the public benefits are there. What we found is that it is because of the constraints that exist for the federal government, really trying to leverage the non-federal sponsors so that they, assuming that they have legal authority to do P3, can move forward with using more alternative finance and delivery. Through that, what we were able to do is buy down the risk of the federal government. At the same time, by capping the amount that will be spent there, by transferring risk for the implementation, for cost overruns and all of that to the non-federal sponsor. And additionally, um, just let's, let's just call it um, improving the federal return on investment, right? So, for every dollar that the, the federal government's investing, we've been able to get – more project done and so in the case of fargo for instance which is the the first and it's the one that's definitely farthest along we did the analysis up front right obviously we recognized that financing costs if they were to do a p3 would be higher than if if we use traditional um, sort of paygo. Um, transaction costs were also higher because they had to hire you know advisors etc but i think we found like 400 million dollars in construction cost savings another like 40 million dollars in cost avoidance we had about 10 million and o and m savings so ultimately the federal government was saving 400 and some odd million dollars overall including the increased cost of financing that they're not actually paying for versus traditional delivery um, so i think in that regard really it's just an issue of looking creatively at how can we maybe do this project a little bit differently. And whether it's split delivery as was done in the case of Fargo, or whether it is through um, you know, leveraging existing contracting authorities in the case of Brazos, or as we're developing uh, LA River right now, um, really just thinking outside of the boxes, how can we make sure that this project can get done more quickly? All of these that we've done thus far have shown massive savings. And again, I think because a lot of the feasibility studies and a lot of the work that's been done are taking an assumption of traditional funding and it spreads out the delivery decades or 16, 20 years. And we're finding that by doing a non-traditional delivery, we can actually get these things done in, in three, four or five years, right? But I think that the first thing to do is, is to just shake out all of the preconceived ideas that you have about budget and the feasibility study and say, okay, here's the project we wanna do how could we do this in a way that um, is timely or more cost effective knowing that we can't you know commit the government to 30 years of payments in a different kind of way what can we do differently and then they call you guys (laughs) they call and they call the p3 team to come in and also you know i guess gut check and and do some initial structuring but i don't think we've actually ever seen a project that we didn't think that we could at least lower the cost for the taxpayer and accelerate the delivery by doing it um, using some of the existing authorities that already exist. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the case. Yeah, definitely. Yeah,
0: it's definitely an opportunity that we should explore more in our projects and and we hope that those listening uh, will consider it um, as they look at their projects that they are involved with and Again, we do have a uh, website for the CORES P3 pilot program. So all you have to do is Google that, and you can uh, get in touch with folks who are definitely interested in, in helping you pursue this opportunity for your projects. You know, Jill, you've been wonderful and covered a lot of great information today that I hope will be a resource for for folks out there, and we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, Before we wrap up, I just wanted to give you a chance to provide any additional final thoughts um, and observations that you would like to share.
2: Um, I mean, I'm, I'm never one to say no to the opportunity to talk, so there you go. Uh, no, I would say, thanks A, thanks for having me. I think this is really important. B, I, I get it. I mean, this is a lot for people to take in, right? We're talking finance. We're talking law. We're talking OMB scoring, et cetera. And as, as, as maybe an engineer sitting in a district, it may seem overwhelming, but it isn't. It's really just bundling a lot of contracts together and figuring out a way that you can get it done more quickly. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of the processes that we have set up right now in terms of contracting and budget, et cetera are, are the same ones that were used you know, in the 1930s and 40s when the Corps did a lot of great work and built our lock and dam system and those sorts of things. But at that point in time as, as America, we were trying to put people to work because we had gross underemployment, et cetera. And while we have that issue right now in the short term, we definitely don't have it in the construction industry, right? And so we're at a point now where our infrastructure is critically, uh, is in critical condition. Um, it's at the end of its life cycle, uh, it needs to be modernized and expanded. But not just to put people to work, we can't afford to take 50 to 60 years to build projects anymore. We have to figure out a way that we can do it in a timely or more cost effective manner. And that could be as simple as just using performance based contracting, or it can be as complex as doing a full Monte P3, right? But what we can't have is, is people limited in their options. They need to be able to look at this holistically and say, here's the best solution for my problem. And whether that's P3 or whether that is traditional design to build, doesn't matter what the choice is. Um, we're just looking to, to allow for people another opportunity or another option, another, another tool in the toolkit or another uh, arrow in the fletch, as I say, so that we can uh, move forward.
1: Yeah, exactly. Just having that tool available to us and being able to deliver value to the the taxpayers at all levels is, is really important for the program. So, but Jill, thank you for joining us today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. To our listeners, we want to hear from you, what topics are important to you and people you're interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the Corps and revolutionize civil works together.